listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast live with the ABA section of Antitrust Law. My name is Adam Hemlock, and I'm the host for today's episode. I'll apologize in advance for my scratchy voice. I have a bit of a cold, but fortunately, colds are not contagious through the internet, so all the listeners should be safe. Joining me today is a great and distinguished group of antitrust attorneys from five jurisdictions around the world, and I'd like to allow each of them to introduce themselves briefly with their name, firm, country, and their role in the antitrust section. Why don't we start with Emrys? Thanks, Adam. My name is Emrys Davis. I'm a partner at Bennett Jones in Toronto, Canada. I practice in the cartel and antitrust space. I'm an ABA member. I don't think at the moment I have a formal role in the ABA section. I'm often (laughs) asked to contribute by other partners who have formal roles uh, to submissions, particularly that have a Canadian component, or if the ABA is commenting on developments in Canada that uh, are important to the international practice. My name is Toshiaki Tada from Japan, and my law firm is uh, Hibiya Sogo, uh, specialized in anti-monopoly law area for more than 50 years. And uh, I've been an ABA antitrust section member for maybe uh, 15 years, and I don't have any specific role in the section, but uh, I regularly uh, attend this uh, spring meeting every year. So I'm Sally Southwell. I'm an antitrust partner at Kirkland & Ellis. You can maybe tell from the accent that I'm based in the London office. Um, So my practice covers cartel investigations and also merge control across a number of jurisdictions, but particularly in Europe and the UK. My name is Barbara Rosenberg. I'm a partner at Barbosa Musnick-Aragon, BMA in Brazil. I've been with the firm for 13 years after having a chance to be an enforcer for three years at the time that Brazil was putting up the anti-cartel enforcement program. And since then, I've been dealing with uh, cartel issues as well as with uh, merger issues. I have the honor of being a a member to uh, the ABA Council and as well a member of the ITF uh, within the antitrust group. Hi everyone, my name is Federico Rossi. I'm a senior associate at Agenda Brea in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And I've been practicing competition mostly all across the board for 10 years now. Great. Well, thank you all very much for joining us. Today we're going to talk about cartel penalties. And this is an area where there are meaningful distinctions between jurisdictions. And I think it'll be very interesting to hear how each country represented here handles uh, cartel penalties. The format for today is we're going to allow each participant to provide a basic overview of penalties in their country, and we'll find some chances to encourage conversation on the contrast between the different approaches. Why don't we start back with Emrys, if we could, and just tell us, give us a general overview of cartel penalties in Canada. Sure. It's important in, for the Canadian discussion to distinguish between what the statute provides and what happens in practice. But let me, so let me unpack that a little bit. The Canadian Competition Act has very severe penalties for cartel activity. In fact, for a price-fixing typical horizontal conspiracy violation, the statute provides a maximum of 14 years in prison, which is, if not the highest, among the highest statutory maximum penalties in the world for this type of activity. However, that has to be distinguished or contrasted with the actual enforcement and actual sentences that are imposed, which have never approached that level. In fact, we don't yet have an individual in Canada who has been convicted and sentenced to actual jail time. So sentences imposed to date have been, we'd call them non-custodial sentences, so serving a sentence of sort of 12 months in a house arrest setting or through community service, etc. So while 
14 years and jail time sounds very severe for individuals. It's not happening in practice, and it remains to be seen whether it will, but that's an important reality for individuals to consider when they're facing the prospect of prosecution in Canada. For companies, uh, the situation is slightly different. Obviously, companies aren't going to jail. The Act provides for a price-fixing offense a maximum fine of $25 million per offense. That amount, essentially offenses can be aggregated so that a company could end up paying more than $25 million in a fine situation. Bid rigging is a separate offense in Canada. It has no statutory maximum. The fine is in the discretion of the court. And so we saw a couple of years ago, uh, Yazaki pleaded guilty in Canada to bid rigging, paid $30 million in an agreed-upon fine. I think that is the second highest amount ever achieved in Canada by way of fine. Prior 10-plus years ago in the vitamin cartels situations, I think some of the companies paid, I want to say, around $50 million in total. But those two examples are by far the highest fines that have been levied in Canada. We typically see, I would say, generally, we've seen between, let's say, 4 and $10 million as the range of the higher penalties uh, for international Canadian companies, uh, and sometimes the fines are lower than that. As is the case internationally, fines in Canada tend to be calculated based on a volume of commerce, an affected volume of commerce model, where the Canadian Competition Bureau assumes a 10% of the Canadian volume of commerce is the overcharge, an additional 10% is factored in for deterrence, meaning 20% of the affected volume of commerce is the base fine amount. From there, the CCB will discount that 20% for cooperation, if you're a member, a participant in the leniency program, for example, uh, and adjust that if there are other aggravating or mitigating factors. Another unique factor uh, in Canada is that the CCB is the enforcer, not the prosecutor. And so we have while that what I've just described is the CCB's policy with respect to calculating fines, ultimately the agreed-upon fine in a guilty plea situation has to be agreed with the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. They're the prosecutors. They have the prosecutorial discretion. They rely on the CCB's recommendation for a fine, but it's possible that there can be further adjustments made to the fine when discussing it with the public prosecutor. So. That's an overview of the Canadian situation. Why don't I leave it there, and then we can get into questions or or uh, other issues later. Yeah, I was going to say, is there any trend towards stronger enforcement or higher penalties, especially with respect to individuals in the United States? The trend has been for the DOJ to push for greater and greater incarceration periods. I think right now, you know, they're getting the average time is somewhere between a year, year and a half, two years. Um, is there a similar pressure in Canada? I think the CCB would like there to be, and it what it lacks, although we may ha- see some cases in the pipeline, it needs the cases where they can prosecute the individuals. So there isn't, in the last five to 10 years, the CCB doesn't have a strong record of prosecuting and convicting individuals in contested cases. They had to abandon a conspiracy case related to chocolate a couple of years ago which was very frustrating for them. And I, I think it had to do with the, the evidence, just it didn't end up being there when they got close to court. They lost a bid rigging trial a couple of years ago. Again, I think it, the evidence failed them. The jury acquitted the accused. So had those cases gone in a different way, I think they would have sought jail time for the individuals involved. 
what sentence would have been imposed is hard to say. We don't, as a general matter in Canada, see sentences as long for criminal offenses as you would typically see in the United States. Uh, and that's for probably all crimes across the board. So it's always struck us as Canadian practitioners to, well, we've wondered when a judge is sentencing an individual for a crime of this nature in Canada after a contested trial, will that Canadian judge look and say, you know what, I just sentenced someone guilty of what appears to be a more serious crime to a sentence that is, you know, four years or something like that. How am I going to sentence this sort of white collar criminal to something as severe as that or more severe? So we'll have to see how that plays out. There's a current investigation related to the price fixing of packaged bread in Canadian supermarkets. And that I'd have thought could result in charges against individuals. So far, only one, there is an immunity applicant who is cooperating. The rest of the grocery stores are not, as far as I know. Uh, and so if that case, which is sort of a made in Canada cartel case, gets to trial, results in convictions, I think we'll see whether the CCB can achieve the longer custodial sentences that they aim for uh, that's consistent with what you've seen in the United States. Interesting. Great. Okay, Barbara, why don't we turn it over to you and tell us a little bit about Brazil? Absolutely. Well, Brazil has a dual system. Uh, cartels are both an administrative and a criminal illegal uh, act. And in that sense, uh, if we focus on initially the fines that would be applicable from the on the administrative side, we will be basically having fines for companies and for individuals. And in fact, the antitrust authorities have been including the individuals in the investigation, likewise we see uh, in the United States. In that sense, companies can be fining up to uh, 20% of the company's turnover uh, in the year prior to the opening of the investigation. The range for, according to the law, goes from 0.1 up to 20% of the company's turnover in the year prior to the investigation. And in fact, the word of the law is a bit broader because it says the turnover of the company, of the group, and it doesn't specify whether it is in the country or abroad, but it says that it can be either the company or the group in the sector of activity in, of the company. Uh, and in that sense, I think it's important to clarify that for cartel cases, especially hardcore, Kaja has been applying fines that go above the 12%. And it has established a, somehow a, an indication that for ex mere exchange of information, fines will go up to 5%. And if you have non-hardcore but still exchange of information about prices and other things, the fines could vary between 5 and 12%. And I think the big discussion that always comes in those cases is which is the basis for the calculation of that fine. And I said before, it's on the basis of the turnover of the company or the group in the year prior to the investigation in the sector of activity. And the concept of sector of activity is to some extent defined on a regulation, but there is a big discussion on how really to go deep on that. And I mean, we'll really have to see from one case to another. What we've been seeing Kaji doing at the same time is even though we do not have full clarity, and Kaji actually yesterday announced that they are willing to issue guidelines on penalties calculation by the end of this year. So hopefully this would be one of the points that would be more clarified. But looking at case law, uh, what we see is that Kaji tends to adopt a reasonable basis for applying the fine. That is to be if the conduct occurred, let's say, in one product that represents 1% of the total turnover of the company, even though the sector of activity could be considered, let's say, auto parts, they might take an approach that would lead to a more 
let's say, reasonable fine in terms of not applying a fine that would, at the end, of not be enforced because it would be too non-proportional. But I should say that it's very hard for us to give uh, total clarity to companies when they contact us and say, okay, what would be the, the outcome of that? Because we see a little bit of variation between the different cases and sometimes the range tend to be so big. So it's easy to look at uh, the percentage. So we always say that if you're talking about hardcore, we are on the higher end, more like 12 and even in some cases reaching the 20%. But the basis of calculation really changes a lot from uh, case to case. At the same time, individuals can be fine and then you have specific percentages for individuals. They vary in case it is a manager, a formal manager that can be fine from uh, one to 20% of the company's fine. <laughs> And if we are looking to other individuals within the company, you can have a range that would be related to a fixed number. It's also important to mention that criminal fines can be applicable. In that sense, parties can be subject to imprisonment of up to uh, two to five years, according to the law. And uh, also fines could be uh, applicable on that, on that range. And lastly... The one point I would make is besides the pecuniary fines that can be applied, Kaji can also apply non-monetary fines such as compulsory licensing or divestment of assets, debarment of companies and other non-monetary fines to the companies. That's very interesting. One question, in the United States, there's a lot of talk today about whether the fact of a company's compliance program should be relevant to the penalty. And if a company has made meaningful efforts to enforce a, a strong compliance program, perhaps the fine should be lower. Is there anything similar going on in Brazil? In Brazil, at some point, there is, existed a regulation that established that. That regulation was revoked a few years ago when Kaji was not accepting it at all take into account that compliance should be important to identify the conduct and to report it, but not necessarily to bring additional discount. Even though, I mean, that has been the practice over the years. In a very recent case, Kaji accepted that a company had what they called a sound compliance program, and they accepted to include an additional discount. So I would say it's not something totally defined. Maybe this is something that would be addressed on the guidelines. And nowadays, I would tend to say that it's normally not accepted, even though we have had one recent case case in which Kaja took that into account. Great. Thank you. Okay, Sally, why don't we turn it over to you? Tell us a little bit about the European Commission penalties. Sure. Um, so I should just start by saying that when we think about penalties in Europe, we think about the European Union level, but then also the member state level, which can be stricter in terms of penalties. So at the commission level, the fines available are purely administrative and the applicable fines are up to 10% of an entity's worldwide turnover. And there have been cases where that 10% cap has been applied um, in last year in particular. That cap applies per infringement. So whether or not the commission identifies one single infringement um, covering perhaps a number of products or several infringements, maybe one infringement per product can have a bearing on the overall ultimate fine. The commission has some published fining guidelines, which it follows in every case. And there's some adjustment in how those ultimately work out the final fine. They start by determining a basic amount of the fine and according to the guidelines that can start between 1% and 30% of the value of affected sales but we often think about 17% as being an average from prior cases. So once that basic amount's been determined the Commission can look at a number of aggregating and mitigating circumstances and one of the aggregating factors would be recidivism. So if the company's infringed 
Article 101 previously, they can be subject to an uplift of 100%. So that can have quite a significant bearing on fines. It's also possible for the Commission to impose periodic penalty payments for a company that's infringing and that hasn't ceased the infringement. Um, so we do end up with some quite significant high fines being imposed in Europe. Then just turning to the member state level, there is a possibility of individuals being subject to criminal penalty in certain member states, not all member states in Europe. The UK is one example. We have a criminal cartel offence, which doesn't require proof of dishonesty in order to um, bring such a case. There's also a possibility, I think, perhaps a little bit like in Canada, for member states to find that cartel conduct amounts to a bid rigging offence or to a specific fraud. So that can be another means by which criminal liability arises in Europe. There are one or two other sanctions on individuals, so it is possible to have individual fines. The UK also has a power to issue a director disqualification order, preventing people from taking up director positions once they're found guilty of the cartel offence. Great. One question. I think in some jurisdictions there's a concern that penalties may be influenced to some extent by political realities. Is there any feeling that in the European Union the penalties for cartel cases may mm, be affected somehow by whether it's a case that has some particular political significance, maybe it's a consumer good or something that's kind of caught the interest of the public in the news and perhaps for that reason there might be a different fine attributable to the conduct? I think when we think specifically about cartel cases, that's perhaps less of an issue. I think that has a bearing on the types of cases that the Commission takes and runs with. Um, and certainly when we think about abuse of dominance cases in Europe, so some of the fines against Google and the various other headline-grabbing ones, there does seem to be a bit more of a consumer focus there and a bit more of a political backdrop. Um, but I suppose one of the biggest cases we've had in Europe recently in cartels was trucks. And we had overall fines of almost four billion. Uh, Daimler was fined one billion individually. So it wasn't so much a case of a consumer interest driving that. It was simply a hardcore infringement and um, a case that ran through the commission's process and then was subject to high penalties at the end of the day. Great. Okay, Tadasan, why don't we come to you and tell us a little bit about penalties in Japan? Okay. Uh, in Japan, there are basically two types of penalty against cartel. First is uh, administrative fine, which we call the surcharge system. And the second is criminal penalty. The surcharge is imposed on a legal entity or enterprise and no uh, imposition on individual. So no f fine for the individual in a surcharge system. However, in the, uh, as for the criminal penalty, there is an imprisonment uh, penalty up to five years and uh, five million uh, Japanese yen uh, fine against the uh, individual. And also uh, the corporation or the enterprise will have a fine up to uh, five million Japanese yen. So this is uh, what we call dual penalty system in Japan. And as for uh, criminal sanction in Japan, it is rarely invoked. JFTC has an authority to make a criminal accusation and the public prosecutor cannot indict the corporation without JFTC's accusation. So the, unless uh, JFTC thinks it's uh, worth to indict, uh, there will be no prosecution in Japan. And also, uh, in practice, uh, JFTC will make an accusation only if the cartel at the issue is uh, malicious enough, which means uh, very impose very serious damages on society or uh, consumers. 
And also, uh, JFTC would make a criminal accusation when the conspirators are repeated offenders. And in addition to these uh, substantive requirements, JFTC also thinks about the evidences, uh, the level of the uh, proof. Uh, in Japan, the criminal court uh, has a very high level of expectation that the prosecutor should uh, produce evidences more than beyond a reasonable doubt. So uh, even if the JFTC has uh, enough evidence to make an administrative fine, still the evidence is not enough for the criminal uh, accusation. So this kind of uh, tough situation, uh, JFTC has a rare case to have a, a criminal uh, accusation. And also I have to point out that uh, in Japan, no individual defendant actually served the uh, jail time. All the criminal sentences are suspended. And if the individual defendant, you know, go well within uh, like a two or three years without the criminal things, then he doesn't have to go to the jail. That kind of system we have in Japan and still no actual jail time in, uh, at the moment. And, uh, and also about the uh, administrative fine uh, surcharge system, I have to tell you about that the JFTC recently produced an amendment bill to the Japan Congress. And the amendment bill uh, is about the surcharge system and also the leniency system. And I think uh, this uh, amendment will pass the Congress in due course. And under the current system of the surcharge, the, basically uh, the surcharge ratio is 10% uh, of the sales of a cartel-targeted uh, goods or service. And the ratio of 10% is reduced to 3% if the uh, offenders are retailers. And it will be reduced to 2% if the offenders are uh, wholesalers. Uh, but under the new amendment, this kind of uh, classification will be uh, deleted. And also, there will be uh, huge changes in the uh, calculation period. The surcharge is only calculated for three years of the sales of the targeted commodities, even if the cartel lasted longer than three years. However, uh, the new system will give the uh, higher uh, limitation of the period, and it will give uh, JFTC to have a discretion to have a, a 10 years, up to 10 years. So uh, if the cartel is a very long one, the impact will be uh, t totally different. And also about the leniency program, under the current system, uh, the deduction rate is uh, basically fixed. If you are first in, 100% reduction. And if you are second in, 50% uh, reduction. And if you are third in, 30% reduction. And also, uh, JFTC accepts the application after the down rate. And after the down rate application uh, is made, it is 30% uh, reduction, and it is f basically fixed. Uh, but uh, under this uh, fixed uh, reduction uh, rate, the applicant has no incentive to cooperate with the uh, uh, JFTC once they are admitted as applicant. So uh, under the new system, JFTC have a discretion to evaluate the contribution of the applicant. So uh, if the applicant makes a very uh, nice, co uh, good contribution, which means uh, give a very good quality of the evidences, then the uh, reduction rate will be higher. That kind of things that happen in Japan right now. Great. Thank you, Tadasan. One question I have is the prosecution of cartel cases criminally versus through the civil process, do those tend to happen with particular industries or particular types of defendants? I mean, what, what generalities can you draw about when cases are pursued criminally? Basically, the evidence talks. 
if you have a, a you know bunch of evidences and uh, ensure the uh, prosecutor that they will can get the uh, guilty sentences, then uh, JFTC can persuade prosecutors to make an indictment or accept the accusation. But even if the county itself is a very huge one, but the evidence is not so strong, like information exchange and parallel conduct, such of things, prosecutor doesn't like that kind of cases. So I think that in the practice, the evidence quality and the quantity of the evidence talks. Great. Okay. Federico, we're going to turn to you now. Tell us a little bit about penalties in Argentina. Okay, thank you for having me. Argentina, as you may have heard, introduced a new competition law in May 2018, roughly a year ago. Uh, under the old regime, fines were capped and expressed in local currency, and they were absolutely non-deterrent. They were capped at 150 million pesos, which is something around $4 million today. And certainly business, businessmen found uh, it was profitable to collude and to engage into price fixing, and they just consider fines as a tax or a mere cost of doing business in Argentina. However, with the, with the new law, which was introduced, as I said, roughly a year ago, fines uh, have been uh, drastically increased. And pursuant to the new law, fines uh, are calculated according to a double system uh, method. The first method is up to 30% of the turnover of the uh, economic uh, group uh, in Argentina during the prior year. And method B being uh, twice the uh, illegal benefit obtained by the, the offenders group. If the fine cannot be calculated by either of these two methods, then the fine uh, is capped at $4,000 million, which is approximately today $100 million. So as, as you can see, fines have been drastically increased in Argentina, which uh, you can tell both Congress and, the, uh, and CNDC consider that cartels are now a priority. Further penalties which may be imposed in Argentina pursuant to the new law is that the offender uh, may be prohibited or banned from contracting with the national government for a period of up to five years, and in the case of bid rigging, up to eight years. It's important also to mention that individuals engaged in uh, anti-competitive conducts may be joined and severally liable for the fines imposed uh, on their companies. Up to date, there have been no, no known cases in which the, the authority has imposed uh, joint and several liability on individuals. However, there's one single case in which the authority has applied individual fines to the, to the managers involved in the price-fixing case. One important novelty in the new law is that, unlike the prior regime, parent entities may be joint several liable for the infringement of their Argentinian subsidiaries. This is absolutely new, and uh, I, I guess it follows the, the EU precedent on several other jurisdictions, so uh, I think uh, clients may, should be aware of this, uh, of this novelty in the Argentinian law. Additionally, there's no uh, criminal sanctions for cartels in Argentina. There are some scattered provisions in the, in the, criminal, uh, in the Argentinian criminal code, which not exactly refer to price fixing, but these are provisions that are tantamount to price fixing. However, there are no known cases in which criminal prosecutors has, uh, have enforced this in the country. So it's interesting to hear that there's joint and several liability in the penalties and enforcement side in Argentina. I'm not sure I was aware of that. Although you mentioned that it's rarely used and that the penalties are typically just based on the conduct of and the, I suppose the damages of the particular defendant. 
I would expect that the government uses the joint and several liability as a bit of a weapon in any plea negotiation or settlement negotiation. It's not, frankly, very uh, dissimilar from what you have uh, in the United States when plaintiffs and defendants are negotiating with one another to settle. I think it's typically the case that you start with single damages and no joint and several liability, but of course the plaintiffs will always say, well, we can kind of have a conversation on that basis, but don't forget we are entitled to treble damages and we're entitled to joint and several liability. Yes, as I said, this is just a provision in, in the new law. It has not been applied yet. It remains to be seen how, how the authority applied, but as you will mention, is a very relevant tool that the authority now has. Great. Thank you, everybody. That was very interesting, and we very much appreciate it. This concludes another podcast with the ABA section of Antitrust. If you like what you heard, please join us in person at some of our upcoming conferences. Details are available at ambar, that's ambar.org, slash antitrust. I'm Adam Hemlock. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.